Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're joined by a man whose travel partner is birds. Wilderness photographer Paul Bannock has followed the paths of all 41 species of owls and woodpeckers in North America to observe their worlds. Owls and woodpeckers rely on each other, and he'll explain what they have to teach us about the landscape we all call home. You don't find owls, owls find you particularly for the spotted owl. I photographed this owl 10 different times, and every time I finally found that owl, it was staring right at me. It had been watching me. We'll also hear some of your tricks for keeping travel expenses under control by using a cell phone overseas and avoiding those maddening roaming fees. And one of our listeners suggests we take a closer look at Albania as a late bloomer of a country with a particularly untouristy charm. Come along as we follow the birds and get better acquainted with our world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the most powerful tools these days for smart travel is a mobile phone. And even budget travelers use them. With a cell phone, you can keep in touch with people back home and fine-tune your travels as you go. In just a moment, we'll explore how, if you know a few tips, using a cell phone overseas can be surprisingly economical. Then, we'll meet a wilderness photographer who lets the birds plan his itinerary. We'll find out about the important lessons he's learned from owls and woodpeckers. And we'll check in with a listener who's all excited about Albania as the place for an off-the-beaten-path European adventure. Let's start out today's Travel with Rick Steves with calls from a few of our listeners as we investigate our options for having a phone overseas. Our number is 877-333-RICK. And you can contact us anytime by email with your stories and suggestions at radio at ricksteves.com. Got Randy on the phone in Indianola, Iowa. Randy, thanks for your call. The question I had was um, based on an experience we had when we were in Austria. We had a real hard time. We bought a, a calling card to make a phone call home and I just couldn't get that thing to work at all, and they had nice, easy uh, English instructions on the wall of the uh, of the phone booth, and I used those. And when I got home, the uh, the phone bill was like sixty dollars or something for about a ten minute phone call. Kind of oh thing. no, I hate that, Randy. I've all my traveling life, I've seen those ads that make it sound so easy in the phone booths, and I've always felt like they're almost like prostitutes at the door of a dark bar trying to get you to come in. You know, I just say, stay away. It's dangerous. I don't want to use those come-ons. They're very, very expensive. Uh, you got to find a phone card at the kiosk where you buy your newspaper and so on, and it costs you about a penny a minute instead of $6 a minute, which what you spent. And you can buy this card, and it has your PIN number. You scratch it off, and it reveals the PIN, and that gives you a local access number, and then you call that, and it says, put on your PIN, and then you dial in your PIN, and it says make your call, and then you dial home for a penny a minute. It's really amazingly good, and um, sometimes they're really common. Other times they're a little bit hard to find, but they're available all over Europe. Did you try one of those? Yeah, we we tried it, but I don't know. For some reason, I had a hard time understanding what all we had to do to get that thing to work. Yeah, well, they work in hotel rooms, and they work in phone booths. Uh, you need to kind of look at the card and see that if you're going to use a local number or if you're going to use an 800 number. If you use the local number, you'll be eating up local time and you'll get uh, more mileage out of your card, but you have a, a per minute cost in your hotel or in the phone booth, I think. If you use the 800 number, it eats up your card quicker, but you won't have to pay at the hotel or in the phone booth. That is a little confusing. You have always a different selection of those cards to pick up, and some of them are more user-friendly for tourists than others. If you find young tourists, they're really good at these because they always got one in their pocket. They'll know which one works best in that town and so on. But I think you've made a very good point, a warning to everybody. Forget those very clever, very inviting come-ons that are pasted to the wall in the phone booths all over Europe. They're $5 a minute instead of a penny or two pennies a minute. I'll appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes. Happy travels, Randy. Thanks for your call. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye now. Polly's on the line in Los Altos, California. Polly, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Got a thought on some uh, phone skills in Europe? I sure do, yeah. So I go over to Europe a couple times a year, and uh, it, I've had some nasty surprises on previous trips where I've tried to call from overseas and come home to a really big phone bill. So I've tried a lot of different things, but what I finally settled on was, uh, first of all, I have an unlocked GSM phone, 
and I took one of my older phones that I was no longer using, and I just went down to a local store to get it unlocked. It cost me a few bucks. Oftentimes, depending on the carrier, your uh, phone company will unlock it for you for free. It just helps to call them, sometimes more than once. Um, and then once you have that, you can get a local SIM card, uh, which is basically the phone's identity, anywhere that you are. So, for example, on a recent trip to the Czech Republic, I looked up which phone carriers were available overseas, uh, found out that Vodafone was available in the Czech Republic, and there was a Vodafone shop in the airport. So when I landed, I was able to go over there and for about $10 get a prepaid SIM from them that lasted me actually more than a week. So so help me with this now for just a minute. You got your old American cell phone unlocked here in the United States before going over there. Correct. That is brilliant. I've got a phone now that, well, it's an iPhone, and the danger there is when you turn it on in a foreign country, you're going to be roaming for a dollar a minute all the time it's on, and, and you can get home with hundreds of dollars of bills or more. Exactly. In fact, I take my iPhone with me. Right. So what I do is I take my SIM out of my iPhone <laughs> so that I'm not tempted at all. That's good. So you can use it, but it'll never be roaming. It'll never be roaming. And when, oh. you're, when you're at a place where there's free wireless, like I was eating at the top of a TV tower in Prague, and it yeah. turned out I could use Google Satellite there. And then you could use your iPhone for free if there's a free uh, a Wi-Fi in Europe. Exactly. Okay, but let's get back to the, um, you get your old cell phone that you never thought you'd use again. You take it to a shop here and you make sure it's unlocked. Correct. And then I believe you go into the settings and it's like, uh, bandwidth, 800 or 1800 or something like that, and you got to flip it different from what it is in the United States when you get to Europe. Yeah, it depends on your phone. I think mine is a quad-band phone, and I've actually never had to change any settings with it. Just okay. well, popping if, in a SIM works great. If you got a tri-band like I do, my old one was a T-Mobile, I would uh, just flip it over that way, and then what I would do is I would use it sparingly and pay the dollar a minute extra it costs to roam and I would check that before I left home to make sure that I knew what I was getting into. And then I knew when I talked on that phone it was going to cost me the European whatever it was, 50 cents a minute, plus the dollar a minute for using an American phone over there. The problem with that is my European friends, if they were going to call me, they'd have to call essentially the United States. It would cost right. them a fortune. I like your idea. Forget the SIM card from America. Take your hardware over there, your phone, and then buy a SIM card, and they're for sale all over the place, pop it in, and you always know exactly what your costs are because when you run out of your SIM card, you got to top it up in a, in a department store somewhere. And it's so cheap anyway. It's, you know, it's just a couple cents a minute. Incoming calls are free, and text messages are really cheap. I use text messages text, a lot. My tour guides use text all over Europe because they're watching their pennies, and I have found that almost any department store at the checkout stand, you can give them your phone, and they will just top it up right there. Give them 10 euros, and it tells you how much you've got. The cool thing about that is you've got your own European phone number. You've got your phone number so locals can call you as a European. The frustrating thing is, for now, for the time being, every time you cross a border, you've got to get a new SIM card, right? You can still use the same SIM. For example, I'm going to Russia in a couple weeks, and yeah. I'm planning to take my check SIM there. And it'll, it'll roam, so you'll go through the, what's left on your SIM cards faster. Right, I will. Exactly. But, but you're right. It will work in another foreign country. It's just not going to be as economic. And then when you do run out, you'll probably want to just buy a local SIM. Exactly, but it, I, it can use it in a pinch. And the other sure. thing I do is I tend to put my phone number on tripit.com, and I share that with whomever I'm going to go see so they can get a hold of me if they need to while I'm overseas with this weird Number. Now that's interesting. So you, wh tell me what TripIt is. That's a way for people to know what your, your ever-changing phone number is in Europe when you buy different SIM cards? No, TripIt.com is a really cool website that I found in the last couple of years that allows you to mail your itineraries and your plans to the website, and it'll build you an itinerary. So you can send them your your airline itinerary, your hotel confirmation, and it'll build an itinerary for you based on the information that's in those messages. And it's really pretty good at doing that. So it's really simple to create an itinerary. Then once you have the itinerary, you can share it with people who, who oh. ne might need to contact you while you're gone, and you can add notes. So I can add my phone number. I can add whatever other information I think people might want to know when I'm gone, but I can share it only with who I want to share it with, so it's not a real security problem. Tripit.com. That's a very interesting point. And finishing things off with the SIM cards and so on, I've noticed in the last year there's even vending machines 
uh, that sell SIM cards at a, at a train station, for instance, when you cross a border. So it's uh, becoming more and more uh, routine, and I don't think I'll ever travel again without a cell phone. It really is a, a powerful tool when you're traveling smart. Yeah, it really is. And, of course, there's always Skype. I just thought I'd mention that. Because, you, and you use Skype. Yeah, whenever I, whenever I go, I have a laptop with me, so mm-hmm. I almost always, if I'm going to call home, I always do it through Skype. It's because so if you've got a fast uh, hookup in Europe and the person you're calling with has a fast hookup, then Skype works. It's just you got to pay to get online in Europe to use that, but the phone call itself is essentially free. Is that right? Right. I often will call to a landline. It's calling cell phones with Skype is a little bit more expensive. It's about thirty cents a minute, but okay. And it's still a lot cheaper than roaming on you know one of the local carriers here in the U.S. Wow. All right. I, I should mention to people that at our website at ricksteves.com, we have a, a corner called the Graffiti Wall, and on that we have a, a section where people share all of their cell phone tips. This is a kind of a new technology, a little bit overwhelming for a lot of people, but boy, once you get it down, you'll never go back. Polly, thanks for your tips. Thank you. Happy travels. Thanks. And Ellen's on the line in Oakton, Virginia. Ellen, thanks for your call. Sure. I just wanted to recommend, um, if people are planning a trip to Europe and they know they're going to be starting in the U.K. or doing an entire trip in the U.K., um, cell phones are really inexpensive there. If you go with a pay-as-you-go option, especially you can pick one up for as little as 20 pounds even, um, and that often comes with 5 or 10 pounds worth of time already included. And they work fine there. Sometimes you can get tri-bands that will work back in the U.S. as well. Hmm. But it's a great, very inexpensive way that allows you to kind of hit the ground running once you get there. So just to kind of translate that, I think 20 pounds would be, what, about $30? Right, but yeah, now that's about what it would be, right? And that's for, you actually buy a cheap cell phone at a department store like Tesco or something in, exactly. the, in the UK. You get the actual phone and you get the SIM card that has, you know, uh, 15 or 20 minutes of call time on it. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess what they're trying to do, they sell the phone probably at a no-profit price, mm-hmm. and then you have to buy those SIM cards so they make their money if you gab. And if you top up, if you add more time to it, right. um, which you can do anywhere, grocery stores, so off it's sort of like the old anywhere. Polaroid camera thing, get a cheap camera right. and give them a lot of money for the film. You yeah. know, one thing when you buy a super cheap phone uh, is it's probably locked, meaning if you go over to France, you won't be able to use that yeah. phone unless you got a, a, a real clever hacker for a son or a daughter who can change it for well, you. Well, or you can see little shops all over that, that will Un- if unlock you, if your you phone. you pay them seven pounds to <laughs> unlock it, whatever, as well. So I don't know if the, the phone companies want you to know that, but um, it's, it's out there. Cheap phone users unite. I think there's all sorts yeah. of stuff changing, and it's going to be easier and more economic to use those cell phones all over Europe. Ellen, I think once you've used a cell phone, you'll never want to go back when you're traveling. That, it, it does make things a lot easier. It is huge. And, you, you know, think of ways to help you travel smarter because you have a cell phone. You can make reservations for a restaurant. You can confirm things. You can find out when you're coming into town, where should you park your car. All sorts of tips let you be a smarter tour guide for your family when you're right, using that cell right. phone. And if you have more than one, too, it, it makes it very easy for families to... Ah. To work together, texting yeah. each other and things like that. Oh, it's wonderful. When we do our TV work, uh, you know, I've got a cell phone and my producer's got a cell phone and, and we're in touch all the time when we travel with our kids. We always text back and forth and we know how the kids are doing. It's, it's right, just a great right. thing. Thanks, Alan, for your tips. Sure. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Up next, nature photographer Paul Bannock explains how birds have a lot to teach the observant traveler. His book, The Owl and the Woodpecker, explains how these two species are as good an indicator of our own habitat as a canary in a coal mine. We're checking in with the birds in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Even if you're not a bird watcher, there's something intriguing about owls and woodpeckers. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're talking with Paul Bannock, who's written a book called The Owl and the Woodpecker. And Paul has seen every one of the 41 different species of owls and woodpeckers in North America. And he's written a beautiful book to tell and show what he discovered, The Owl and the Woodpecker. Paul, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Now, what is it that intrigues you about owls and woodpeckers? Because i got to say they are fascinating birds for people who aren't even that into birds. They really are, Rick. I'm fascinated by all animals and plants, really. And 
I'm particularly fascinated by families of animals that have multiple members. Because when you have a family with multiple members, you know that each of these members has developed from a common ancestor to take advantage of a specific element in their environment. So when you have many members, you know that these birds or these animals or these plants are helping to tell the story of what differentiates one habitat from another. So you looked at owls and woodpeckers from the Arctic all the way to the pine forests of the southeast. Yep. I've always been passionate about the natural world and seeing the important variables in the natural world and also the conservation of the natural world. And I wanted to create a book that helped people look at the natural world through charismatic bird species so they could look at the birds and learn about the birds. And in the process of learning about the birds, they'll learn about what's most important about each specific ecosystem. And hopefully, they're motivated to steward the conservation of those areas. So that's what's driving you. It's not just a a birdhouse with a lot of colorful woodpeckers, but this inspires you to take care and, and, and respect and appreciate the ecosystem. Absolutely. Now, you said charismatic birds. I've heard mm-hmm. of charismatic uh, Christians or charismatic politicians. What's a charismatic bird? Well, owls and woodpeckers are, are both charismatic for different reasons. If you look at almost every culture throughout time in the world, they've had some very strong feelings about owls. And maybe it's because they have large, wide-set eyes that remind us of ourselves. But some cultures uh, in Ethiopia, they might think that an owl is, is a sign of someone's going to pass away. Or in another country, it might be a sign of good luck. The Ainu in Japan believed that owls were spirits of each village. And in North America, owls were believed to be, the burrowing owl was believed to be the priest of the prairie dog towns. And other owls had other mystical associations. Who believed that the owl was the priest of the prairie? Some of the Native Americans believed that. So the the American Indians really had a special place in their lore for owls. They did, and for woodpeckers. But in the case of the burrowing owl, they thought that the burrowing owls were able to bring rain. Hmm. And what about just the wise owl? Where does that come from, and are they smarter? I I think the perception is that there's an association, shall we say, between far-set eyes and wide-open eyes and awareness um, and thus wisdom and perspective. And I think we've developed this idea of a wise owl from that. But the owls are not something that people take in passively. People tend to look at an owl and they get strong feelings. And in that way, the subtitle of my book is actually Encounters with North America's Most Iconic Birds. And owls truly are iconic. They have meaning, but the icon's meaning is different in each culture and and for each person. And the iconic owl, when it comes to environmentalists, is the spotted owl. And Mm -hmm. and that's probably one that really frustrates people that want to develop things and Mm -hmm. and it really impassions people who want to protect the environment. Mm -hmm. Why does the spotted owl matter so much more than other owls in this crusade for conservation? Well, I started out looking at these two families, because they had so many members and because they were so colorful, interesting, and iconic. But one of the wonderful things that I discovered as I researched these animals is many, not only a spotted owl, but many are considered indicator species of their habitats. And an indicator species... Canary in the mine shaft kind of thing. Exactly. And an indicator species is basically a species who, by monitoring their populations, you can essentially monitor the health of the individual ecosystem. The spotted owl is famous because it depends upon the old-growth structure of a forest, particularly coastal forests, but also forests in the Cascades. And by monitoring those, the health of that animal, you're able to see these forest structures were challenged. Well, unfortunately, these forests that have these structures were in heavy demand economically. Um, So this owl came to the forefront. But if you go to other places, for instance, in the southwest, there's the endangered ferruginous cactus ferruginous pygmy owl. There's only 30 left. That's because that owl depends Mm. upon riparian areas of the Sonoran Desert. Only 30 left? There are only 30 of the cactus ferruginous pygmy owl left. Only 30 individual individual birds birds of that whole species. That's true. And a photograph of one of those is in the book. Now, although there's only 30 birds left... During the decline, this species was removed from the endangered species list. 
Why? Because it prefers riparian areas in the Southwest, in Arizona, in the Sonoran Desert. The scarce resource there is water. And the riparian areas are the areas where streams are either are there either seasonally or they're there year-round, and those are the places people want to develop too. So they were removed from the endangered species, not because they weren't endangered, but because it was too big of a headache for people who wanted access to that area. Exactly. Wow. Now, your passion for finding these and documenting these with beautiful photography took you to many places. You you traveled from the Arctic all the way down to, what, Florida? Down to southern Florida and... and Southeast Arizona, South Texas. From a travel point of view, uh, because of your birding, what sort of wonderlands were you most impressed by? What were you most thankful to have uh, discovered as a byproduct of looking for these birds? That's a tough question because I think every place was my favorite when I was there. I was fortunate to be in Maine at the peak of the fall colors to find the yellow-bellied sapsucker. And I spent weeks at a time walking the tundra in the Arctic, um, sleeping in a blind, hoping a polar bear did not come across me, trying to photograph snowy owls. I was in three separate thunder and lightning storms carrying my metal tripod and my large lens as I walked in pursuit of birds. And I was in the boreal forests in 24-hour sunlight, being able to photograph normally nocturnal owls at the magical twilight that seemed to last for four hours. You must have patience to do this. And I, I'll tell you, looking through your book, the magical moments you caught with these birds, peeking out of their holes or dropping a, an egg that wasn't going to work out or uh, just lining up on a fragile little branch, the moments you caught, did you anticipate these moments and set the camera up and, and know that sooner or later they're going to stick their head out? Or what was your technique? Most of the work is before you ever even go out in the field. Now... I should preface that by saying I spent two to 3,000 hours in the field um, making the photographs in this book. And that's not travel time or hotel time or camp time. That's being in the field. But even more time was spent doing the research throughout my life of learning about the natural world. And a lot of this research helped me understand what season would I find a bird, in which location, during what time of the day or the night would it be active, when would the light be best, um, but still allow me to see or photograph this bird? How would it fly? Where would it perch? Where would it hunt? How would it hunt? How would my presence affect it? And how would I make my presence least known? Wow. So there's a lot of, lot of knowledge required and a lot of anticipation. And the best photographs actually unfolded in my head before I took them. A lot of photographers will say the best tool you have is the, is the tool between your ears. Yeah. Because you spend a lot of time setting it all up, learning everything. And this does two things for you. One, it allows you to be in the right place at the right time. And secondly, it allows you to recognize a unique behavior or recognize something really significant is about to unfold uh, before it happens. So you're prepared to capture And then you've considered the light and you've got your gear ready and and then bam, you've got that shot. I'm talking with Paul Bannock and he's written a, a gorgeous book, a coffee table book called The Owl and the Woodpecker. You know, Paul, there's nothing new about observing nature. I mean, you mentioned in your book that 500 years ago, ships took artists as part of their crews so they could sketch the flora and the fauna in these new lands. Of course, cameras have been around now for 150 years, recording North America's great natural heritage. When you were taking your camera into the wilds to capture all of this, you needed to have all the proper gear. And I would imagine today modern cameras enable you to get things that the guys who came before you 20 or 30 years ago would just be so envious of. What gadget really is one of your favorite gadgets from bringing home the magic when it comes to photography and birds? That's a a really good question, Rick. And the answer might surprise you. Um, Years ago when I was taking photographs, I wanted to travel as light as I could. And I wanted to be able to climb mountains and take photographs in my kayak and snowshoe and ski. And I still do all those things. But in those days, I would always try to do without what has become my most important tool, and that's the tripod. The tripod allows me to set up precisely where I want to be set up and allows me to focus on the composition in advance, the anticipated composition of the camera, and it allows me to keep it still so I get very, very sharp focus with my photographs. 
It's not a new tool, but I do think it's the most important tool. And that's the whole anticipation thing. You know where that bird's going to stick his head out or where mm -hmm. he's going to land. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a lot of your photographs have almost no depth of field. Mm -hmm. So you want a really fast shutter speed. I want fast shutter speed, and I want the bird to pop out. My objective is to try to create intimacy in the photographs because I think we protect what we understand and we protect what we feel close to. So if I can create a sense of intimacy and have the subjects pop out, I try to make it feel like it's just me and that bird or it's just you and that bird. It is. When I paged this book, it's, it's me and this bird. And uh, I would imagine a lot of these shots are cropped after you shot them or, or do you have them all set up before you shoot them? It's pretty minimal cropping. Most of the cropping is due to the, the, the um, dimensions of the page. Okay. But other than that, they're mostly full, okay. uncropped images. Going through this book is like, for me, I was thinking, this is the ultimate nature walk. You got all 41 species of owls and woodpeckers, and they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing just perfectly. It's utopian. It's almost too, it's almost too lazy. Now, you set out to actually capture, in photography, every one of the species of owls and woodpeckers in the North American continent. Mm -hmm. Did you know you would get it? Are there some that are just so elusive that you thought you might not? What was the hardest one to find? The hardest one to find was the next one. Um, <laughs> a friend once told me, when I told him I wanted to photograph all the owls of North America, he told me, you don't find owls, owls find you. And in fact, that is true in many cases, particularly for the spotted owl, for instance. When I've photographed this owl 10 different times, and every time I finally found that owl, it was staring right at me. It had been watching me. Well, that's the camouflage thing. I'm paging through the book, and it's almost like you chose to show off the bird's camouflage. Almost every photograph, these birds fit into their environment. And you probably didn't choose that. That's just where you see these birds. You see them where they are the most difficult, if you don't know what you're looking for, to see. This is true. And these birds, they are very well camouflaged, but it's important to me to capture them in their environment. But you asked which ones were most difficult. The most difficult ones were the smallest ones with the most narrow niches that tended to be the highest in the canopy. For instance, the flammulated owl is an owl that's just a few inches tall, and it hides in the canopy of old-growth forests that combine dug fir and ponderosa pine. Now, this owl is about the size of a ponderosa pine pine cone, and is frequently up near those pine cones or near the trunk of the tree, oftentimes dozens of feet up in the air, maybe 50, 60 feet up in the air, and it has a ventriloquial call. Wait a second. A flammulated, what's it called a again? A flammulated owl. A flammulated owl. And what is its call? It has a very call. Boop, boop, boop. You said it was ventriculated? It's a ventriculist. It can actually make its sound appear to come from very far away. And this owl probably does that to protect itself because it's so small. But it's a fascinating owl. This owl, Rick... Flammulated owl. It's, it's track number 15 on the, on the CD in the back of your book. You've actually got all the owl and woodpecker calls. All the calls of all the owls and woodpeckers in North America captured by a gentleman named Martin Stewart in their natural environment. You can hear their natural environment. Can you environment. actually... If I played any one of these, could you name them? Could you yes, identify them? Yes, <laughs> That is so cool. But the flammulated owl, I'll tell you something else interesting about this owl. This owl requires this mix of ponderosa pine and dug fir because it arrives in the western mountains during May when it might snow any night and there's still feet of snow on the ground. It arrives from Central America and it feeds only on insects. So you can imagine a small bird, only a few inches tall, arriving in the western mountains, there's still snow and it needs insects. So it stays up in the canopy. Yeah, but it also relies upon one particular moth, an owlet moth or a noctuid moth that has a natural antifreeze in its blood. And these moths are found in the greatest abundance where ponderosa pine and dug fir are mixed. And this owl knows that if he eats those moths, it benefits from the antifreeze. No, that's the only thing it can find at these times. Right? Because you might, you might have sub-zero temperatures in the mountains. You might have snow. It might be 20 degrees. 
any other insect would be dead. Man, if you're a flammulated owl, thank God for those moths. Huh? Oh, yeah. Now, I get the sense that you're enthusiastic not just about birds, but about nature in general. Mm-hmm. Give me some ideas from a travel point of view how your endeavor to photograph all of these species of owls and woodpeckers has helped you appreciate some aspect of our environment, of the great outdoors. That's a good question. I, I, I always thought of it the other way, that my appreciation drove me. But I think I'll give you an example. Um, the northern flicker is a very important woodpecker in North America, and it creates cavities for 35 different species of birds. But what's fascinating is to see how most cavity nesting birds require a very specific size hole. And as a result, many of them have an affiliation with the cavities of one species of woodpecker that creates it. So for instance, the northern pygmy owl of the, of the mountains of the west, and they live in the Pacific Northwest and California and Arizona, they nest primarily in the cavity of the hairy woodpecker. The ferruginous pygmy owl of the um, Sonoran Desert nests primarily in the cavity of the Gila woodpecker. The Sawan owl in the cavity of the flicker. The boreal owl in the cavity of the pileated woodpecker or the flicker. The elf owl in the cavity of the ladder-backed woodpecker. Wow. And many of these relationships exist. Truly, if you pull any species of plant and animal out of the mix, it has an impact on the others. And the owls and woodpeckers allow you to see that. Woodpeckers are like heroes when it comes to affordable housing for birds. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking owls and woodpeckers with Paul Bannock, author of The Owl and the Woodpecker. Two little owls in a row, row, row In the bough of a great big tree And they felt just as happy And they looked just as happy As any little owls could be, be, be As any little owls could be We'll conclude our visit with Paul Bannock in a moment. His remarkable photographs are featured in his book called The Owl and the Woodpecker. It's published by the Mountaineers Books. It was one of the country's best-selling books about birds when it came out back in the fall of 2008. Paul also works at a wilderness preservation agency called Conservation Northwest in Seattle. Also coming up, we'll hear from one of our listeners who thinks we just don't talk enough about Albania. He'll tell us why Albania, of all places, is one of his favorite travel destinations. Thanks for joining us today on Travel with Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I'm Rick Steves. In a few moments, one of our listeners explains why he thinks Albania is the perfect place to get off the beaten track. Right now, we're chatting with Paul Bannock. Paul explores the connections between owls and woodpeckers and what they can teach us about our world in his remarkable book, The Owl and the Woodpecker. It's packed full of his stunning up-close photographs of all 41 species of these iconic birds. Paul, first of all, do all woodpeckers peck wood? All woodpeckers peck a woody substrate, and some oh, you of that, like a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> some of that substrate is wood. Um, I had to think for a moment because one of those substrates is the saguaro cactus, which is not ah, really wood. Okay, but they but, need their sharp noses to peck holes to dig out homes. Basically, they do. Now, do other birds sort of take advantage of all the woodpeckers' hard pecking and, and use those homes when the woodpeckers move out? Yes. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote this book, it's not only because these birds, woodpeckers now, to find habitat, but woodpeckers create the cavities that more than half the North American owls require for their nests. So they're related that way. They are. Interesting. Now, I noticed you had a beautiful shot of a, I believe it was a woodpecker, actually sort of cleaning house, and one of the eggs wasn't going to hatch. Mm-hmm. It's a dead egg. 
-hmm. and he was just dropping it into oblivion out of his window. It's even more impressive than that. That bird actually lifted up that egg, spent a few minutes getting its body in the right posture, and that small bird carried that egg about 50 yards across a meadow and deposited it in a oh. cavity that it had created for its waste material. A little, a little respectful burial of well, a stillborn woodpecker. Even more important, this bird is one of the only cavity-nesting birds that nests in the same tree every year. So it needs to keep that tree and the surrounding area clean so that predators oh. don't scent. Don't know he's there. Exactly. I feel so bad. I thought he was just chucking out a dead egg. Oh, no. Whoa. Now, when I was looking at that, I thought, Every little chick has to have their first flight. Mm -hmm. You've spent a lot of time camping outside of nests and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of when that's going to happen? And have you ever seen a little baby being kind of pushed out of the nest and it's like fly or, fly or not? Yeah, and that's, that's one of the greatest treasures out of this journey was timing most of my visits to when the birds would fledge. And I witnessed dozens of birds fledging. Is that the word, fledge? Fledge. Take your first flight. That is, fledging is when you leave Fledge. the nest, when they leave the nest. And they do it airborne. Woodpeckers do it airborne. They actually have a, a wobbly but direct flight toward a parent, which is teasing it with the promise of food. But the parent moves further and further away from the cavity, drawing that young bird out. I'm thinking of the first time I rode a bicycle without training wheels, and yep. the consequences of messing up were not quite as dire, I don't think. Yeah, and imagine this. The, the parents regularly fly in towards the cavity, and they call when they have food, and the young call back. Well, when the parents want the young to fledge, they start withholding food, but give those same food calls and then move further and further from the cavity, luring those young out. Now, owls, on the other hand, rarely are able to fly by the time they fledge. And oftentimes they're high up in trees. They tumble out of the nest. They literally fall out of the nest, bounce on the ground, roll over a couple times, and then run across the forest floor, climbing every surface they can until they're able to climb far enough off the ground to keep them safe from predators. <laughs> wow, what a, what a privilege to witness that as, a, as a naturalist. Now, when a traveler is heading off to enjoy the North American continent, how might this book, The Owl and the Woodpecker, help a traveler have a better trip? Well, I think The Owl and the Woodpecker can give a traveler a sense of the most important variables of 11 key North American habitats through these birds. You can look at the pictures. You can read the stories about these birds. But the, but the book itself really is about North American habitats. It's about the natural world of North America, not about just the owl and the woodpecker. The habitat that we human beings share with owls and woodpeckers. That we share, that we need to steward, that help us appreciate where we are. I'll give you an example. I'm a sea kayaker, and I was once sea kayaking in the San Juans with a friend of mine. And then later we went up to southeast Alaska, and I said, how do you like this? And he said, well, it's basically the same as Washington. And I was astounded because it was so different. All of the tree species were different. All of the marine species were different. Superficially, it was the same. What this journey helps you see is the subtle variables and how those really impact all of the creatures hmm. that live in these areas. So reading this book is almost like putting on glasses if you need to make your vision better as a traveler in North America. It is, and you'll never look at it the same again. Wow. Paul Bannock, you are an inspiration. The book, The Owl and the Woodpecker. Fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Paul Bannock's book, The Owl and the Woodpecker, includes a CD of more than 40 bird calls for identifying these species in the field. It's recorded by Martin Stewart at naturesound.org. One of our listeners to OPB Radio in Portland emailed us with a suggestion. He just returned from visiting Albania for the third time. He thinks it's the ideal country for anyone looking for a rich cultural experience in a country with almost no tourists. got Brian Smith on the line from Portland, and Brian just got back from Albania. Brian, thanks for calling. Hey, thanks a lot. You were in Albania 10 years ago, and you just got back from another trip? Right. So uh, I hadn't been since uh, 1997, which was actually my second trip. This time I wanted to go to the north. I had a friend I had met at the American University in Bulgaria backpacking in the early 90s, and uh, he's still in Albania. 
he's working actually guiding tours to some of the remoter valleys in the northern part of the country. Absolutely beautiful. So you've been to Albania three times. Why would anybody go to Albania three times? Well, you know, it, it's one of those places that actually differentiates itself from a lot of other places in Europe in that it has a, uh, a largely homogenous population and a very interesting history. As you know, they probably suffered through one of the most brutal communist regimes uh, in Europe, and uh, they were proclaimed the first atheist country in the world in 1997. They emerged from that, and about 25% of the population subsequently emigrated in the disastrous economic conditions that they found. But the people that stayed have some of the richest Mediterranean culture that you can find. So they had this very, very strict, almost Stalinist communist government, and that caused them to be more isolated probably than any country in Europe. And that has the sort of pleasant uh, results today of, of a very distinct culture. For tourists, this is like going back in time and, you know, seeing Greece or southern Italy or, you know, any of the other parts of the Adriatic, for example, that uh, have been in a freezer for 50 years. Now tell me, Brian, about just the rudiments of getting there. Do you need a visa? Where do you cross the border? How do you change money, find hotels, language barrier, that sort of thing? U.S. citizens do not need a visa to visit Albania. Um, you can actually fly there directly on British Airways or on Austrian Airways. And uh, we actually flew directly into Tirana. And from there, we stayed a couple of days in Tirana, a couple of days in the port city of Duras, uh, which is very charming in its own right, and then traveled to the north, to Valbon. So exciting to think that Albania, you don't even need a visa. Now, is, it, is there an infrastructure for tourists? I mean, can you function speaking English? Can you find hotels and so on? Absolutely. In fact, Albania is trying very hard to open itself to the outside world. And their, their accession to the EU is imminent. All right. So when a traveler goes to Albania these days, doesn't need a visa, people speak English, you can find hotels. Is it very expensive, Bren? Actually, it's very affordable. In the main cities, uh, Tirana and Duras, you can definitely get a, a nice hotel room in the very middle of town for about $40 a night. And then when you go to the far north, it'll be more of an all-inclusive package. And you'll get your room, you'll get your board, uh, a picnic lunch, and dinner all included for uh, about $40 a day. So do you get a sense that they're hungry for tourism, they want Western influence and, and uh, Euros coming in and so on? Absolutely. You know, a lot of the economy of the country is driven by those foreign remittances of the 25% of the population that has actually left the country. So the goal of bringing more tourists into the country is very, very important to them. So 25% of the Albanians are actually outside of Albania working in, in more affluent countries and sending home money to their loved ones. Close to a million Albanians have left the country. About 600,000 of them are in Greece. And uh, a lot of travelers to Greece may not realize that a lot of the service staff there is actually Albanian. Wow. Uh, but that's definitely true today. There's only 3.5 million people in the country. And how many have left? Uh, close to a million have left, about 25% of the population. Jeez. Now, when President Bush went there a few years ago, he had this famously rousing welcome. Why would Bush get such a, a great welcome in Albania? Well, you know, there's a long history there in the Balkans of the United States uh, supporting, shall we say, the enemies of Serbia. And uh, Albania certainly qualifies as one of those in their relationship with the Albanians of Kosovo. Okay, because, you know, for instance, I've never been to Albania, but I've seen a lot of Albanian culture, I think, in Kosovo, because those people are ethnically Albanian. Is that correct? That's right. The vast majority of Kosovars are Albanian. And you may, may remember the issues in 1999 when a couple hundred thousand refugees fled Serbian shelling. So that's why Bush was greeted as a hero when he visited the capital of Tirana. Absolutely. Brian Smith, from Portland, uh, you've been to Albania three times. Uh, it sounds like there's been huge change in the last decade in Albania. Well, you know, they said that they were reborn in 1992 when they finally once and for all exited communism. Then they suffered through an economic collapse with the pyramid schemes in 1997. And since then, it's been a very rapid development through both the foreign currency that's come in through the expatriate communities uh, across Europe, and then also through uh, domestic economic development. And today, it's a beautiful country. Tirana is a charming city. You won't see hardly any tourists there at all. Now, Tirana is the capital, the one big city in the country. Is that right? That's right. There's a lot of nightlife, a lot of excitement. The National History Museum is really something beautiful that 
that you need huh. to see and spend a couple hours in, and it's free on Mondays. Now, my sense is it would be a lot of Stalinist architecture, sort of shoddy construction, uh, soulless, uh, blackened by pollution. Do you get that feeling when you're in Tirana? Uh, you know, they've actually done something really interesting to address that. The mayor of Tirana put together a beautification campaign for the communist blocs. They realized that they really weren't in the financial position to demolish these communist blocks and rebuild them with modern construction, but they decided to paint them in cheery colors, and uh, that's done a lot to beautify the city. Very nice. Now, Albania is famous for its bunkers, its uh, old uh, sort of uh, anticipating an invasion military bunkers. There was, what, 700,000 of them. What's the story with these? Well, you know, Albania was uh, famously conquered by just about every foreign power you can imagine, from the Greeks to the Romans to the Turks to the Italians, to the Nazis. And when the communists took over, one of their methods of maintaining that level of fear in the population was to build these bunkers uh, and to impress upon them the fact that invasion was imminent, spies were everywhere, and that they needed to keep an eye out. So that's one of the things that made sure that Albania maintained itself as a communist country, the last communist country in Europe, until 1992. Until 19, and since 1992, they're stuck with these uh, 700,000 concrete armadillos. What do they use them for now? Well, uh, there's a number of things that they use them for, but I don't know if we'll go into that on the air. Uh, if you care to look into your guidebooks, there are some funny anecdotes about that. Come on, with a little discretion, tell me what they're used for. Okay, with a little discretion, uh, it's famous that a lot of Albanians lose their virginities in bunkers. Really? Bunker love? That's correct. You know, there's another interesting story about the bunkers as well. They're so difficult to remove because when they were initially built, uh, Enver Hoya, the communist dictator of Albania at the time, said, if they're so good, you, uh, I can't remember the name of the engineer, but the engineer who designed them, could go inside, that they could shoot a tank shell at it, and that he would survive. And indeed, he was forced to go and sit in the bunker while a tank shell was shot at the bunker, and he did survive. So these things are totally immovable, and they'll be there for all history and posterity. Now, Enver Hoya, that was the um, Stalinist kind of leader. I I understand he actually made people change their names when they had sort of bourgeois meanings in their family names? You know, he made them change names for many reasons, whether it was for religious reasons, If you were an ethnic Greek, you had to change your name to an Albanian name. They were really trying to build an Albanian national identity, and it was a kind of nationalistic communism that they were striving for. So, And what's he thought of today? Is he considered like a discredited, or was he a hero of Albanian patriotism? Well, there certainly is a range of opinions on it. In the southern part of the country, he's more popular than he is in the north, but his family members are still prominent people in Albanian society. And another thing, they had uh, put his name just about everywhere you can imagine. And there are certain places in the country where even in the uh, enthusiasm to rid itself of communism, Albanians were unable to remove his name and and the name of the Communist Party. So you may see that uh, in different places around the country. There still are some lingering communist monuments. Like the 700,000 bunkers you'll see all over that tiny country. Certainly. Now, Brian, if... President Bush got such a warm welcome when he visited a few years ago. Can an American tourist today consider that, well, that's good news for me, too. If I walk the streets of the capital city, Tehran, and people know I'm an American, uh, they'll feel good about me? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, through some of the economic turmoil, Albania was considered a place that was potentially a little bit dangerous for independent travelers. But I think that's changed significantly with the economic progress that's taken place in the country. Uh, today, it is a place that's uh, safe and comfortable. You can go around at night without any fear of being uh, attacked or assaulted or even really bothered in any way. Can you connect from uh, Albania over to the Greek island of Corfu, and can you connect easily up the coastline to Dubrovnik in Croatia? You know, uh, I didn't come in that way this time, but that's certainly the way I came in last time, uh, coming across from Corfu. There's a regular ferry. I believe it runs at least once a day. Right. And All of these things will be very affordable. Albania is probably one of the most uh, cost-effective places to travel in southern Europe today. So, Brian, of course people are going to see the capital of Tirana when they go to Albania. If you wanted to really get off the beaten path and to find some remote, pristine kind of wilderness for an Albanian Heidi land, kind of, where would you go? Valbon. Valbon is absolutely 
the most picturesque valley that I've seen in, in all of Europe, and I've done a significant amount of European travel. So this is V-A-L-B-O-N-A, way in the far north of Albania, right on the border between Montenegro and Albania. That's correct. It's just uh, over the mountain ridge from Montenegro, and it's a stunning valley. Less than 100 people live in the valley today, and only during the summertime where the population cultivates small plots and uh, grows most of what they need to survive locally there in the valley. The mountains are rugged, the houses are picturesque and historical, and there's even one house that's been rebuilt and uh, brought up to Western standards with the help of expatriate funds, and uh, there's a place where independent travelers can stay. Now, Brian, for a lot of times, in my experience, uh, there's places that Americans have yet to discover, but there's Germans there, and when there's Germans there, you know, sooner or later the Americans are going to learn about it. Uh, In Albania right now, what's the status of their tourism for independent travelers? Are there a lot of Europeans there? You know, uh, there are in places like Tirana and Durez and Vlora and Saranda on the coast, But if you go up into the interior of the country, there really aren't many at all. When we were on the ferry, uh, which is part of the three-leg journey up to Valbonne, we did meet a couple of Italian hydropower engineers, but they certainly weren't tourists. This is a place which really has not been explored to a great degree at all. So when you hear people on the coast of Italy complaining about the tourist crowds, you must just shake your head and think, why don't you guys wake up to Albania? Albania is a place that independent travelers definitely should take a look at. And if you go to the coast of Albania, you will find travelers. But if you go to the inland, you're certainly going to find a a genuine cultural experience that you'll relish for a long time to come. All right. Brian Smith from Portland, thanks so much for a report on Albania. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Sarah McCormick and Pat O'Connor for their production help, and to Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.